get up, get, get up, get up. All right, what's up, Mets fans? Welcome back to the Mets Up Podcast, episode number 105. Just wrapped up a um, a series we'd probably like to forget about against the Houston Astros. Not great, not great. We will talk about everything that went on during this series, as well as guys give you guys a prospect report, because we haven't talked about the prospects in a while. So I figure, you know, we're with the Mets now. Let's tell you about the future of the Mets that's coming up in the farm system, as well as preview the Rangers series that will be happening this upcoming weekend. So if you guys are not yet following us on all our social media, make sure you do, at Mets Up. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, the YouTube channel. Make sure you go to the Mets YouTube channel if you want to watch a video version of this. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Odyssey, wherever you listen, you will be able to find us. Drop us a rating, drop us a review. We really do appreciate it. And without further ado, let's bring in James. James, how you feeling, man? As well as I could be feeling right now. Coming off first three-game losing streak of the season, just got... I don't know. Just got, just got beat by the Astros two weeks in a row. They're really good. They're really the good. The Astros are a really good team. Spin zone, like you said, first three-game losing streak of the season. It's June 29th, and that has yeah. not yet happened. So I know a lot of people are really, really ready for the sky is falling. I think we have to remind everyone, one, the sky is definitely not falling. No. And two, the Astros are one of the best teams, not just in the American League. In all of baseball, the team is just class top to bottom. They go to the World Series like every year. Yeah, I mean like what, three of the last like four or whatever it's been. They've just been one of the best organizations in all of baseball. So yes, it sucks. It absolutely stinks to lose four in a row to the Astros. I think Gary, we saw in the broadcast, yeah. is feeling a little bit with the comment of, we haven't beat this team in eight years. So like, But just even that sentence, like you haven't beat this team in eight years. Like, of course, we don't play them very often, but even just that sentence, like eight years. It's a little daunting. Yeah. But, you know, this is going to happen. It's a long baseball season. It, did, it wasn't great, though, game one. You want a real silver lining? Yeah, give me a silver lining. game one? Yeah. Thank God it was only two two-game series. I know. Right? Oh, my God. A three-game <laughs> series twice against the Astros would feel a whole of a lot different than just losing four in total. That's, that's yeah, one no, long almost, series. It's almost like you just got swept for one long series, which yeah. kind of makes it more palatable, I guess. And you're not going to see this team for hope maybe next year when they even have the schedules, but definitely not the rest of this one until the World Series. Yeah, see them in the World Series. Yeah. We'll see you then. But game one was not great. We've coined a term that we've used a lot. It was a poop fest. Uh, it's not, I, I hate using the term. I do, but it's just. It's won a series. It's won a series. Game one was the game. Carrasco from the rip did not have it. And he even had some interesting comments after the game. But I feel like we can get into those after. But this whole game kind of came down to the first at-bat of the game. Again, these are the comments that Carrasco made. But he had Altuve down 0-2. Two looking strikes to start this game. Jose Altuve. One of the best leadoff hitters in baseball. One of the premier players of our entire generation. It's really good. I might, if it depends on his next three or four years ago, he could end up being a Hall of Famer. Down 0-2, he grinded the at-bat all the way back to 3-2. and two, And then there was a check swing on what I believe was an outside slider. Yeah. And it looked like Altuve could have gone. It looked really close. It did. It looked, it looked like something that was like egregious or something that I would say, like, this, this is a bad call. But also, I know that Ron Mayaculpa was out there at third base. <laughs> I know the Mets have had their... Uh, you know, the comments about him in the past. But swing was not called, and you kind of saw Carrasco maybe lose it a little bit. Because then now you got the next batter was Jeremy Pena, hit a ground ball to shortstop Francisco Lindor. Pena's just an incredible athlete. We just talked fast. about that in the last preview. He beat it out. wasn't that hardly hit of a ball. So has men on base. Jordan Alvarez hits a ground ball to the right side. It gets by Pete. It probably was a play that maybe like a 5% chance he could have made. It was a well-struck ball. We were also well, in the ballpark, so you can tell as well. I think the big thing here was that because the double play wasn't being able 
to be turned, he now had to hold on Jeremy Pena at first base. Yeah. So this ground ball, point. which is a normal out, and again, if the double play is turned, you're out of the inning. One, yeah. two, three, nothing bad happens. But because the double play wasn't turned, Pete Alonso had to hold him on at first base. And it was a play that I don't think was necessarily easy, but I also don't think it was hard. It was just one of those kind of like the Altuve check swing. Yeah, I get there. Like a 50-50. Like either yeah. you make the play or you don't. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. And Pete didn't make it. And it just ended up leading to this, like, everything kind of avalanche snowballed. snowballed into a big inning that ended up just getting away from Carrasco again against the Astros. Literally. Again, the Carrasco first anything was such a big storyline last year. And it wasn't at all this year until these last two starts against the Astros. And also just kind of dumb luck that this schedule wound up where we had the series against the Astros, four games against the Marlins, and the Astros again. So after the Astros hit him and saw him, now they get to do it again. Yeah. Because the next at-bat, Alex Bregman came up. It seems like he had a bit of a plan. Alex Bregman is known as one of the more, one of the more pull-happy hitters in baseball. Jose Altuve, too. Most of this yeah. Astros team, because they're very used to like building and developing their swings to get the home runs out of Minute Maid Park. Those Crawford boxes. Yeah. Bregman won the 75. Uh, won the 70, won, Within the bottom 75 for opposite field hit rate in the entire league, he had a nice little opposite field single to right field, got a run in. Well, a little anecdote, too, because before the game on the field, watching the Astros take some BP, and Alex Bregman seemed to have a personal hitting coach that was not necessarily with the Astros, but just kind of a bystander on the field. And in between every single round, which I give the Astros credit to, they just have so many cameras running. They want to make sure these guys see their stuff. Bregman was talking to whoever this hitting coach guy was or guru, whatever he is, and they were going through, like, working on hitting the ball the other way. I, I thought Alex Bregman was, like, he seemed like he has been struggling a little bit this year for his standards. He's still a relatively good player. But they seem like they really wanted to attack whatever the weakness was for him here, and he might have fixed it maybe. Can I tell you something funny about Bregman? Hit me. He right now in 2022 almost has twice the barrel rate as he had in 2019 when he hit something like 40 home runs. That's like shocking to right? me. Because you would have seen that version of Bregman and be like, that's an MVP. That's one of the best players in the league. And for everybody listening, barrel rate is a stat that we like to use a lot in this podcast. It's one of the most predictive stats in all of baseball to determine hitting and power, and it's when – you hit a ball. Think about like hitting a barrel if you've ever played baseball. Just understanding baseball. Barrel, you really barrel up. You feel well. It's about hitting a ball over, I believe it's either 100 or 105 miles an hour off the bat. It depends based on launch angle. It's dependent on what the launch angle is, the exit velo moves. But like really at the end of the day, it's it a ball is that a, struck technically almost like as well as it could be. It's a quality of contacts that. Yes. It's about hitting the ball as best as you can. And it's a little better than hard hit rate because it's hard actually hit, significantly better than yeah. hard hit rate. Predict, predictive. Hard hit rate is, could just be a hard ground ball. So this yeah. is why we like barrel rate so much. You'll hear us mention it many of times on this podcast. Also just, we have to take a step back and give the Astros credit as probably the best hitting development organization in all of baseball. Yeah, definitely one of them. They're incredible. Every single one of these hitters that we're talking about right now came up in this inning and the whole series was homegrown and came up through their organization. Well, and like you mentioned, they're a great hitting team, great hitting organization, and to see Carrasco for a second time within a week after they did hit him well, it was an unfortunately bad matchup. And we did get a little insight into what Carlos Carrasco was thinking during this first inning too, because after the game, he mentioned he didn't care for the, the call by the umpire. He said it basically threw off his entire outing and a lot of people had things to say. I, for one, am all about umpire slander. I have no problem with players talking about the umpires because I just don't know why they're so untouchable. Nobody can touch the umpires. Nobody can say anything about these guys because they do their job perfectly. I disagree. That being said, I think I would have liked to have seen a little bit more uh, of a tough mental game there from Carlos Carrasco instead of letting it get to him, which it seems like it might have. I mean, you could say it, but maybe not as voraciously as he said it to the media like I'm not going to hold it against him but also I do understand why some people are like just 
it was a call. It's also as like such a subjective call. Yeah. Like sometimes balls and strikes, like we can really tell if that was a ball or that was a strike. We're watching on TV. We had the K zone. We had base. We had base. MLB.com. Baseball savants. K zone. Like we could tell a ball or strike. Check swing is really there. Isn't really a direct codified law there that we can say like that, especially for that exact swing. Like yes or no. Yeah. Also, a fun fact I learned about the K zone. Did you know about this? That the K zone is based on like their last, I think like a hundred plate appearances, based on the strikes and balls called in those zones, and they adjust really? it based on that. I learned that the other day watching one of the uh, national broadcasts. Never knew that. I, fun fact. I don't know that either. But we're all kind of just building up this entire inning to eventually Kyle Tucker coming up with two men on and just annihilating a fastball that was right down the middle. I don't think you could have put it on a tee better, no. which, again, it all it was a bad inning. It was a poop fest. Poop fest. <laughs> this is just the kind of stuff that happens sometimes, but it stunk. It, it was unfortunate because Carrasco really, up until these Astros starts, like you said, had been pitching so well and had been so big for this team. He's had so many massive outings and big moments. I by no means am done with this guy. Like, I've seen, you know, maybe some people against guys falling. You don't have a choice. I, I don't have a choice. Again, <laughs> it's not my choice, like you said. But he's still a very, very good pitcher. He ran into a team that hit him well the first time, saw him again in the same week. It's tough. You wish for better. But I'm not I'm not writing off Carlos Carrasco's year by any means. Also, Carrasco did settle in, like, a little bit, relatively so. The next few innings, he got a double play to get out of the second inning, got a double play to get out of the third inning. And there was a situation where I believe it was the bottom of the fourth after he allowed actually a fifth run to score, where the Mets had an opportunity with men on. It may be, I think there were two men on, scoring yep. position, two outs. Couldn't really bring him home. I think I believe it was Canna came up with the bases loaded. Yep. Maybe Mark has been so clutch for us all year. I'm not going to hold anything against him. But then came out for the fifth, and Jeremy Pena reached an infield single, at which point Jason Shreve came in to face Jordan Alvarez, and that did not go well. No, it's been a rough go for Shreve. Shreve has struggled mightily, uh, specifically in his last five innings. If you really want to kind of look at it under a magnifying glass, 10 earned runs. And it just it feels like recently when he's been coming out on the mound, the confidence hasn't been there necessarily, the stuff hasn't been there, and the performance has not looked great. Also, this at-bat against Alvarez, it, it was a real grinded out at-bat. Nine pitches before the eventual home run, and that ninth pitch wasn't a full count with a fastball. So... In a situation like that, I guess there's one out and you're playing from catch-up anyway. You don't really want to allow a free pass, but Jordan Alvarez is a scary, scary, <laughs> scary human. Also, so good. I kind of feel for Jordan right now after the way he left this game on Wednesday. That was a real rough blow. That was tough. Yeah, he got, cart- to see. got yeah. carted off. Don't and like he, to see he was that. Like, seemed pretty emotional, as emotional as I've ever seen Jordan Alvarez. But even later in that inning, Yuli Gurriel, who has been not good at all this year, the worst year of his professional career. Yeah, I, I hit one out of Tracy Shreve. Hand up. This one might be on me. Yuli Gurriel had a pretty good series. I dropped my first base tier list this past weekend, and Yuli Gurriel went in below average. There and he had a great series. But to be fair, the numbers tell you he wasn't playing well. But that's on me. The jinx was there. And Mark said before, 10 earned runs for Shreve over his last five innings pitched. Also 17 over his last 14 and a third innings pitched. It's not, not great. Not great, Bob. No, not great. Um, keep an eye on what's going on with Chase and Shreve and maybe the left-handed reliever role. Also, I feel like we haven't seen Joelle in a while. Like, I would have loved to have seen Joelle come against. Many, I mean, some off days mixed in here. It's yeah. Been, we were so used to so many games and so many days. Now we're going to have three off days in like a week and a half. Yeah. It's a different, different, different ball game. Different ball game. Bats also just didn't show up in this game either. I mean, uh, Framber is... Framber is the most boring, awesome pitcher in baseball. Yeah, but Framber also is like the exact worst type of pitcher the Mets could ever face because we've talked a lot about the way the Mets score runs and produce runs this year so far. It's been a lot of timely hitting. It's a lot of ground balls that find holes. It's not really a lot of, like we said before, barrels, home runs, balls over the fence. A guy like Framber, his team knows he's going into a game getting ground balls. He's, I think, over still over 65% ground balls in the season. So when your team's fully aware that ground balls are your plan, 
you're going to be positioned much more efficiently to get these guys out. And that is not that it's the Mets' plan, but it's kind of the way that they carry out, they execute so far this year, and just found like basically everything was finding in glove. Starling had two doubles, which was cool. Yeah, and uh, he's kind of historically for his game not been as successful against lefties as he has righties. And he's actually hit lefties, I feel like, fairly well this year. Anecdotal, I don't have stats to back that up, but anecdotally, it seems like Starling Marte has figured out something against left-handed pitching, and he did put two really good bats on the ball. Yeah, guys, Starling Marte this year against lefties in 862 OPS, uh, 10 extra base hits. So he has been successful against left-handed hitter, uh, pitchers, as you guys were saying. Nice. Thank you, John. And also, like, we still were hitting the ball hard. Like, Lindor, Nimmo, McCann, you had two hard hit balls. Canna had three. It just you can't convert. Some, when you put the ball on the ground against a guy who is a ground ball pitcher, like you said, and puts the guys in the right place, it's really hard to get hits. The Astros are a smart team. We talked about this a little bit last year. If you put the guys in the right scenario or in the right place, it's really hard to get hits with the ball on the ground. It's kind of felt like when we faced Tyler Anderson that Friday night. Where, like There was some contact made, but like most of it was made. It was like directly at fielders because these teams have incredible amounts of information. They knew it was going to happen. I mean, like at the end of the day, it was a poop fest. They were better than us. This was an absolute B-town. Shout out to our boy Ender Inciarte, who <laughs> made his Mets debut. We love Ender Inciarte. All the longtime listeners of the Messed Up Podcast know how big of fans Mark and I each are of Ender Inciarte. His game through the years. We could just you tip your cap to a ball player like that. Yeah, we, uh, we definitely definitely have some history with Ender Enciarte yeah. on this podcast. I'm being sarcastic. We don't like Ender Enciarte. I told a story a few months ago that Ender Enciarte, when that was 2015, 2016, I believe. I don't remember, he, yeah. There was a September game where the Mets were in the playoff hunt, and Yoenis Cespedes hit a home hit would, would have been a home run over the center field wall. Enciarte rose up to, to rob the home run, and I believe that day it took the Mets like one game out of the playoff spot, ending the game. And I had just moved into a new college apartment and ended up being home alone watching the Mets game. And I was so mad about that play. A little, very, very, it was a cheap Ikea cra- <laughs> coffee table I got on Craigslist. So it was like $15. I didn't really care that much about it. I just put a nice whop, a fist right in the corner of it. I, I, kept, that, I kept that coffee table with a nice little James fist uh, mark for the next three years. See, I remember Ender Inciarte killing us when we had Antonio Bastardo on the team. So that, we're going a little bit deeper now, I think, even. And Ender Inciarte had, like, the game of his life at City Field, and that was kind of when he was just coming from Arizona, I think, and still relatively not this, like, he didn't have the Mets lore of being a Met killer just yet, and I feel like that was the game that it was born. Ender Inciarte is also part of one of the funniest trades in baseball history. When the Diamondbacks took Dansby Swanson first overall and yeah. immediately spun him to Atlanta, hometown team, pretty safe prospect, Dansby Swanson the whole time, with Ender Inciarte for Roast beef elbow Shelby Miller. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they got burned on that one pretty horribly. That's like that's like a fire everybody type of deal. But now that Ender Inciarte is, is a Met, we welcome him with open arms. That's our man. Welcome invite onto the Messed Up Podcast. Yeah, whatever don't you, listen to the old ones. Yeah, whatever you want to come on, Ender. You're more than welcome to have a conversation with the boys here. But that pretty much wraps up game one. Not a whole talk lot. way more about game one than I ever thought we would. Yeah, I was... A little Astros talk. A little Astros talk. Yeah, they're a great we'll, team. We'll stop with the Astros Model talk. Model organization, besides for all those guys who cheated a couple yeah, years ago. we praise them enough now. It's probably <laughs> a perfect time to move on here to game number two, which was a good old-fashioned pitcher's duel. We had Taiwan Walker going up against Justin Verlander. Verlander, who yeah. I think is, I don't want to say has surprised everyone, but coming off of Tommy John surgery at the age of these guys, what, like 38, 39 years old? Something like that. He's pitching unbelievably well this year. He's in the Cy Young conversation. He's just simply been one of the best pitchers in all of baseball. And then we had Taiwan on our side, who now with this new splitter-slider combination has become an absolute dog in this rotation. We love Taiwan. So this, you knew it was going to be a close game from the start, and that's exactly what happened. And you knew it wasn't going to be another poop fest. We will only give you one poop fest per series. Sometimes zero, hopefully never two. But the best shot we actually had against Verlander was the first inning. And I feel like something like that happens a lot with these very, very good pitchers but who are a little bit older, 
day game after a night game. Maybe the preparation's a little bit off, but Nimmo lays a double, which I believe was the first pitch of the game. First pitch of the game, absolutely smoked it to yeah. left center field. Misplayed by the center fielder, probably could have cut it off. But that's something that you see a guy jump on the first pitch, and especially when you saw Marte jump on the second pitch. Yeah. Because they, two pitches, two at-bats. I was like, oh, maybe the Mets have something here against a guy like Justin Verlander. It also feels like, like you said, an older pitcher. He probably just kind of has a routine that he does in the first inning, doesn't want to show you much. And they saw, I believe, fastballs early on, and they tried to jump on him. Yeah. We got one double. Marte kind of got under it. But I like the aggressiveness, especially from Brandon Nimmo. Like, I like when he's aggressive. That means he's feeling good. It's hard for me to law the plan that didn't – did nothing happen afterwards, you know I, what I mean? I like the process. The I like pro- the process yeah, yeah. behind it. Theoretically, but I don't think it really continued the rest of the game. No, it did not. It stopped. Yeah. <laughs> well, this inning right here, we just wound up not really score. We, we ended up not scoring. Pete and McNeil had back-to-back very long at-bats after this. We mentioned it was two pitches for the first two batters of the game, one out and a man on second. Ended up making Verlander work for 21 pitches this inning. So even the fact that we didn't get through it, again, McNeil, like a nine or ten pitch at-bat, wound up just not really getting it. The guy... He, couple of check swings on breaking balls down the zone. He missed a fastball he got mad about. Yeah. And just grinding foul balls, foul balls, foul balls, couldn't get through. But you got that with 21 pitches. I'm like, okay, maybe there's a chance that we chase Verlander by the sixth. Yeah, no, he retired the next 12. Yeah. The next 12, and the guy who broke it up is none other than Ender Inciarte on what was the most perfect swinging bunt I might have ever seen. I actually don't think he could have rolled it out any better. And then after that swing bunt infield single, Verlander retired the last 10 Mets that he faced. So there was a stretch from the first inning until the eighth where Justin Verlander retired 22 out of 23 Mets. Yeah, I mean, he was absolutely dominant. He was sick. And what was good, at least, though, was that Taiwan was also pretty dominant, pretty sick. He had one of the best outings of the season, which is hard to say for a guy who's had great outings all year. He did. It was it was a good – it was like kind of an old-school good Taiwan outing where he went seven and third scoreless but only had three strikeouts and two walks. This is kind of what we saw Taiwan even doing earlier this year when he was still getting used to this new repertoire. But all those balls put in play, 22, against a very good Astros lineup. Five were pop-ups and 11 were on the ground. So 17 out of 22 balls in play were absolutely – not dangerous in any way whatsoever. Yeah, it felt like Luis Guillorme was vacuuming him up everything I think today. he had like 10 or 11. I think at one says. point I was watching the game with a former club coach, shout out Matt Belford, but he was like, I think he's made seven putouts like in like the first five innings, which is really, it's a pretty great rate. He had nine when I had actually left work to come here. That was in like the fifth, the sixth inning. Yeah, he's, to Howie on the radio. he's a vacuum over there. I also thought it was interesting that Taiwan featured a couple new pitches too that we haven't seen a whole lot of. Feature is not the word because we're talking about featuring Taiwan. Sprinkled. Still, yeah, sprinkled. He's still continuing to feature the split change and the slider. He actually featured these every, season, like every single start because the percentages keep climbing. Most highest combined percentage of those two pitches in any start this year, 57% for those two combined. The next most thrown pitch for him was 16% with a four-seam fastball. 29% slider, 28% split change, 16% four-seam fastball. And the splitter was gross again. Like he, he, got, he made the Astros hitters look kind of foolish with it. He's a totally new pitcher. It's unbelievable. And then Mark did just mention the sprinkling in of two pitches that we don't see very much from Taiwan. And it was a curveball and a cutter. Cutter especially. I mentioned, I, learned, I noticed a curveball in the first inning, which is kind of interesting that he would throw that pitch out there the first, second time through the order. But the cutter especially as Taiwan is becoming a more, a, I don't know what the word is right now, a pitcher who can and should pitch deeper into games. He had Jordan Alvarez for the third time of the game. Jordan Alvarez got out in the first inning, drew a walk the second time around. So now yeah. Jordan Alvarez, third time around the order against a right-handed pitcher. See, that's something to be afraid of in a 0-0 game. Yeah. And Taiwan Walker threw him two cutters. The first one just... Froze him. I, could, I believe it was a swing strike, actually. Was it? I thought he I threw one that he just like looked at and was just like, oh, 
What was that pitch? It was it was a pitch that got a strike, and then next one was a ball that he just hit a pretty casual slide ball. Yeah, no, I mean, Taiwan really did have a great performance, and even though the offense didn't show up for this game, it is by no means on the pitcher's fault right now. That wiliness right there, that kind of adjustment, having that in your tool bag, being able to drop a new pitch a third time around the order to literally one of the best hitters in all of baseball, that is the difference. Yeah. That, is, that is development, that is growth, and that is... An extremely positive side for Taiwan Walker. And I do think that Buck Walter also did a great job taking him out a at the exactly job. right time because he started to get into a little bit of trouble in the seventh inning, or in the eighth inning, I should say. He pitched seven and a third, and he went right to Edwin for the middle of the order. He did not get into any trouble at all. What happened here was that this was the completion of the third time around the order for Taiwan oh, Walker. Oh, you're right, you're right. And right, the right. first batter of the eighth inning was a nine hitter in the Astros lineup. Yes. And once he got through the lineup three times, only at 93 pitches, Buck Walter said, You're coming out. And I'm bringing in my best reliever, one of the best relievers in baseball, for the top of the scary Astros And Ed- Edwin hit Altuve. And Edwin got into trouble, but then got out of it. To be fair, we were also hanging out uh, in the suite talking to Carton and Roberts. You guys might be familiar with the radio hosts. Uh, Maybe check out TikTok coming days. Yeah, our TikTok will have a little content with them. But we were talking to them, Imagine so there was our, a little bit back. TikTok's going to have content. I know. We haven't been able to do that <laughs> in, in a, a year. long time. It's been a minute. But um, yeah, I told you, when we're with the Mets, we're going to get more content. But yeah. I really like that move. That's now, what, the second or third time we've seen Buck go to Edwin in the appropriate situation that is not the ninth inning. Second time in three weeks. I love that. I love seeing Buck do that because that just shows that shows some growth as a manager, and that's a great process. We love a good process. Fantastic process. And, it, again, at the end of the inning, it worked. It was scary for a moment because he hit Altuve, and I believe Pena got the single. Somebody got a single. It would be Pena up next. Pena got a single. I don't remember if the guy up next got the single. And then he actually was Pena because then he got he struck out Bregman, and he got Alvarez. Yes. Yes. And a good, really good way to scoop uh, the foul ball by Nito there. Now, Great I got to ask you because, of course, Monday morning quarterback, we did see the ninth <laughs> inning. Yeah. And Drew Smith came in for the ninth, and he gave up a two run bomb to Jason Castro, which is really disappointing because he's just not a very good baseball player. I think he was hitting less than 100 at the time of the home run. Yeah. But it brings up the question that with 14 pitches in that eighth, should Edwin have come out for the ninth inning? And I'd like to know what you think, because I, th- I I have my opinion. I think that he might have come out for that inning, but one of the big reasons he didn't was the massive delay after the collision between Jordan Alvarez and Jeremy Pena. There, that inning was by far the longest of the game. Shout out, again, John, our producer, <laughs> for telling us this game was speeding along, and I believe the middle of the sixth allowed me to get to the ballpark in time yeah. for the Carton and Roberts TikTok. I, I need you both of you guys, because you have now <laughs> done this in back-to-back, se- not back-to-back series, or back-to-back Weeks, two. I believe it was like two out of four games. Yeah, two no, out of four that games. Was, that was that was big trust from um, between me and John. That was really really helpful for me to actually get here on time. I ran. Yeah, right. I ran from my house to the G train. Ran from the G train to the seven. Ran from the seven into the ballpark. It was huffing and puffing when I got into the suite, and I was like, the woman was. I came up to the bar. The woman was like, "Do you want? Do you want a drink?" I was like, "Can I just have some cantaloupe? <laughs> I just had a few pieces of cantaloupe. I just needed hydration." Yeah, James has a full time job. Uh, <laughs> me, I can come to the ballpark whenever yeah. I please and watch yeah, the games. Five minutes James, away. James had to run here, sprinting yeah. to but get there. We did it. We did it. But did I it. do think that if that inning didn't take so long because of that collision, there might have been a chance that Edwin came out. But also, it seemed like Edwin just expelled a lot of emotion and a lot of energy, as he always does. Like, he does. I think if Edwin was a two inning pitcher, he would be a two inning pitcher. But it just doesn't seem like that is really something that anyone in the organization wants or needs him doing. No, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it is really easy to get lost in that there was that massive delay. Yes. And you do know that like adrenaline seems to be a huge part of Edwin Diaz's game, like yes. you just mentioned. I think Buck ended up making the process right decision. And Drew Smith has been great this year. Like, Fantastic. His, what, 2-4 ERA still? Like, he's, yeah. still, he's still Drew Chains. He's still our guy. One of our production guys was very upset about Drew Smith after this game. But in the reality, like, I know he had that bad outing against um. <laughs> 
I know he had that bad outing, kind of shaky outing against the Marlins where he allowed inherited runner with that Friday or Saturday with all the walks. Yeah. But he did end up striking out enough guys to get through that inning, and Adam Alvino saved him. But this home run to Jason Castro was the first earned run Drew Smith's given up since June 6th yeah, it was against just, San Diego Padres. It was just like a swift kick to the nuts a little bit. It was it was, it was was a very swift kick to the nuts. And this is also, this sent his full season ERA over two for the first time. Oh, two, two. I'm saying, like, he's still been a very good pitcher. Sometimes you kind of get burned by uh, Jason Castro, as hard as that is to say. Maybe not Jason Castro, but Jason Castro-like players. And sometimes you run into Justin Verlander, who doesn't give up any runs. Also, could Presley. I bring to attention the fact that the Mets have lost two out of three games on backup catcher home runs in the ninth inning? I I would love for you to not bring that what up. The hell, what the hell is that? Why, I would how's that even happening? I would love oh. to forget that Jason Castro and Nick Fortes have hit home runs against the Mets in the ninth. It also just goes to show how chaotic and random baseball is. And for the Mets who have lost three games in a row for the first time all year, two backup catchers had to play hero for their teams. Yeah, I mean, like, and this game was this game was running towards a home run was going to win it. Yeah, it was just gonna matter whose home run was going to win it. And reality, the Astros have like. Seven guys who can hit a home run. The Mets have, like, th- four. <laughs> just turned out to be the one guy <laughs> no, you yeah. didn't think would hit a home run ended up doing it. It stunk. It wasn't fun by any means. This series stunk. I mean, it, we can't sugarcoat it. But that being said, just because the series stunk doesn't mean that this Mets team stinks. And it feels like right now there are a lot of Mets fans who I think we've, we've been pretty strong all year long. But it feels like a lot of people are ready to do the whole sky is falling thing. And I think it's important to note the Mets, this June swoon that has been talked about and had been feared this entire year, the June swoon, the classic Mets doing their thing, they still finished the month 13 and 12. I mean, it's not good by any means. This isn't a month where you go, man, 13 and 12, that's, that's, <laughs> that's exactly how we want it. But when you play against 14 teams above 500, the Dodgers, the Padres, the Astros, and the Brewers, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm okay with that. So some of my mentions I got yesterday, and I was tweeting about how much I didn't like playing the Astros, which is fair. One guy says it's the difference between the American League and the National League. The Mets get to beat all their National League teams. The big, bad American League comes to town. Yeah, the American really League is so one. deep with all their yeah. talented teams like the Los Angeles Angels and the Kansas City Royals, so deep. One guy told me the Mets weren't beating the Marlins by enough runs and that they're not <laughs> playing well at any level right now. Like these are, just, these are not realistic ways to view this Mets team right now. Could they be playing better? Sure. Yeah. Am I a little disappointed in how they performed against some of the better teams in the league that we played? Yeah, a little bit, but I'm not going to take this as like, I don't know, I'm not jumping out the back window right here. Like there's, there's still plenty of things to be excited about about this Mets team. The Mets schedule also, to play a little, you know, looking ahead, the schedule gets easier as we go on. Uh, John, I don't know if you have the stats for us here, but second half, what's the Mets schedule looking like, strength of schedule-wise? Uh, moving forward, the Mets are tied for the seventh easiest remaining strength of schedule in all of baseball. Uh, July, it, it eases up a lot as well, so yeah. there you go. And for a team that is good, one of the best teams in baseball, an easy schedule, feels like something that could help spark this team to maybe get on a hot streak. And a lot of people will come against us with that and be like, well, when you make the playoffs, you got to beat the best teams. Yeah. yeah, we'll play them in the playoffs. I don't know. Whenever that happens, that we'll, we'll figure that one the, out. And but the, the playoffs is a crapshoot, too. The Braves yeah. literally got hot last year at the exact right time. We all know on paper they weren't the best team, but that's also why you play these games. It's not about being the best team on paper. It's about being the best team on the field, and the Mets are still 18 games above 500. they They've clearly shown all year long they are one of the better teams in baseball. The Astros are really good. You're going to lose to good teams. And You're going to lose to bad teams. And June was kind of like a war of attrition, too, because we had series against the Dodgers, the Padres. I'm going to say the Angels, even though they're not very good. And then Brewers. And now you have these games against the Astros at the end. Like, you play 14 games in one month against teams over 500. That just over 500. Teams who are pretty pretty close to being bona fide locks for the playoffs. I'm all besides the Brewers and the, and the Padres. It also feels like the Mets were doing a lot of, like, 
big traveling this month too. Yeah. They went to California for what felt like a month, even though it was like a week. But two. they were going yeah, two weeks. They were going all over the place. They then flew to Houston, they flew to Miami, they flew back here. There was big games in between. Month. A big travel month. It's gonna be okay. I really do think that this June swoon could have been a whole lot worse. And I feel like considering that the Mets didn't necessarily play their best baseball, to come out of it thirteen and twelve against the quality of teams that we have played, I'm not happy. I'm content. I'm, I'm, I'm not content, but I'm fine. Yeah, like, yeah, okay. F- well, fine's content. That's fine, fine is not content. Ask fine is on a different level than content. Semantics. Absolutely not. Anybody who's ever had a significant other in any way, shape, or form knows that fine and content are not the same. Yeah, you know, I just, I just have a great relationship. I've never heard those <laughs> words. <laughs> but let's get out of this because I'm kind of done talking about series and the Mets got swept, and we should talk about the prospects. Yeah, let's talk about the, the prospects because we, since we've become the official podcast of the New York Mets, we have not done a prospect report, and that is something that me and you – both love talking about. We're big prospect guys, and the Mets have some really yeah. good ones to talk about. And we know you guys love hearing about them. So this was honestly a brilliant idea for a segment last year, so high five to us. Boom. Big high fives for the boys around. And let's just start off with the number one guy, the dude that everyone's talking about. The murmurs have begun again for the Francisco Alvarez call-up, which is looking like it could maybe happen in September. I don't know. He's The way he's playing, because the numbers, they're pretty unbelievable. If we're going to talk about, we're going to get to the stats in a second. But first, like talking about Francisco Alvarez call up, if he does get called up, it will be, I think, as more of like a, a guy that mix in for DH. Strictly. Yeah. Strictly. It's An emergency real, catcher. He has not worked with any of the pitchers that are currently not, on the major not league even level. Spring training. And you can't do that. That's another reason why teams tend to not trade for catchers at the trade deadline is because those yeah. catchers have to get a repertoire with all those guys that they're going to work with on and the pitching side. And also why it's relatively un- like it's less likely that a team calls up a catcher like this in the middle of a season when they're like competing for a playoff spot. Like we saw the Orioles do with Adley Rushman, but that is a different level because they're kind of building an organization through Adley. Like yeah. now you get him your half season to prepare because like they're actually somehow approaching 500 in the hardest division in baseball. So Playing you do better. that. And you look at a team like the Blue Jays who call up who someone who was in contention with Alvarez as number one catching prospect in baseball, Gabriel Moreno. They kind of called him up out of necessity because they had Alejandro Kirk and Dan Jansen. Dan Jansen had two tough luck injuries so far this year, even though they were both hitting very well. Had Zach Collins, who I think anyone knows Zach Collins isn't really – you're not really using Zach Collins to block a top prospect. So you call him Moreno. But with Alvarez – it would be a situation where the Mets are looking for a hitter, I think, rather than a catcher. I believe so, too. And the numbers don't lie. In his last 161, 162 games now, because this stat's a little bit older, and this one came from Matthew Brownstein. Shout out to him. Since 2021, last 161 at this time, 155 hits, 34 doubles, a triple. Sprinkle that in there. Show the legs, Francisco. 41 home runs, 115 RBIs, which, again, nonsense stat, but... 41 home runs and 115 in 161 games. In the minor, in the minor leagues? Yeah, I don't care what level Brooklyn you play Brooklyn and Binghamton? Yeah, They're not really hitting teams and hitting leagues. No, it's unbelievable. 936 OPS, 149 WRC+, plus, which is just an advanced stat to kind of give you runs created, for those of you who don't know. And it's also in terms of 100. So when you're talking about that stat, 100 is the average. And whatever number you are over 100, that's considered what percent you are better than the league average. So it takes all of your stats combined, and more so your power, your play discipline, and it puts you into like a vat with all the other players. So and over the last 161 games that Francisco Alvarez has played, between the players at each of his levels, he is 50% better than the average. And as one of the youngest players there. There it is. You stole yeah. the words right out of my mouth. He's one of the youngest players. And he's doing it again this year in AA, as you can imagine. He's literally 20 years old, doesn't turn 21 till November. That's playing insane. In, playing in AA, he's four years younger than the average age. That's true is unbelievably good. He's ninth in the Eastern League in WRC Plus with 147, 17 homers, 16 doubles, 45 RBIs, and a 914 OPS. I mean, the guy is just an absolute beast at the plate. We saw him in, in person in Brooklyn last year, got to speak to him, a little bit of an interview there. 
this dude's got star written all over him. I mean, we hope. He just the only thing with him is like you just gotta keep doing it, go up more levels, and keep yep. producing. And he did have that tiny little little bitty itty bitty swoon in the middle of this year, and he has just turned that around and again proved that he is one of the best prospects in baseball. And people who see him play, the scouts, the fans, you can just tell that when the ball hits his bat. Something different is happening than the other guys. Yeah, we saw Jordan Alvarez take BP this weekend. He different. Was, he was taking 50% swings, and they were going into the Coca-Cola corner. Francisco Alvarez, not lefty, but can do similar stuff. The bat, it's like a trampoline off of his, the ball's off his bat. Matt Eddy, editor-in-chief of Baseball America, who came on last year, said that his batting practice at the Futures game was the most impressive there. Yeah, and I, I can't wait to watch him take some more batting practice soon. Yes, and now moving on. I would say the next best prospect in the Mets system, Brett Bathey, another guy who had a little bit of a swoon earlier in this year, but has just spun it around and been a very, very good prospect again. Slash of 282, 383, 455. That's good for an 838 OPS. Eight home runs and 13 doubles. 12.5% walk rate, which is very good. 27.5% strikeout rate, which is a little bit high, but Beatty seems this year to have made an adjustment to hit the ball in the air more and pull the ball more. Those were two of the things kind of pulling down his profile in Which years will past. Spike the K rate. Of course, and that just becomes the next adjustment. Now that you have the approach and the swing where you're pulling and lifting, now you have to be a little more selective. And I'm confident the way that Beatty has developed, that will come with time. And he's especially hot at the plate right now. Hit safely in 18 of Binghamton's last 19 games with five home runs over those 19 games and a 17 to 12 strikeout to walk ratio. And he's a former. Guest of the Mets Club podcast. Yes, we, like, we like to we like to get the prospects on here every once in a while. Uh, Beatty also, again, if you guys are new to the podcast, we know there are some of you new guys here. He's an incredible athlete too. It feels incredible. like his athleticism gets underplayed at times. We've watched him in person. We saw him at the fall league. We've seen him around. He's a big, strong dude who runs really well and can play third base, no doubt. And he's a guy who he is so athletic that there probably is a chance that if there was an adjustment to be made for him, he probably could hang in corner outfield. Oh, without a certainly. doubt. Certainly. And we know also from talking to him that he was an accomplished football player, technical middle school in the state of Texas. Yeah, which that's yeah. like almost the NFL. <laughs> Basically, it's at least like the non-power five schools in, in NCAA Division One. But also, middle school teammate Garrett Wilson. All yeah. my Jets fans out there, that's a pretty cool connection. There might be a possibility for down the line some kind of fun combo content there. And Brett Beatty was an incredibly accomplished high school basketball player in the state of Texas. Great athlete. That's an incredible athlete. Everyone should go back on our The Messed Up YouTube channel. Try and find that interview if you can, because he's also like hilarious dude. He's had a lot of fun. Yeah, he had a lot of fun. We were holding him from the bus as well. We literally <laughs> stopped the entire Arizona Fall League team that he was on from leaving, because he had to do an interview with us. Yeah, and it was a little windy, but bear in mind, we were not yet the official podcast in New York Mets, so our equipment was okay. Yeah, it's not, it's not like this fancy equipment we have now. The last guy we'll talk about in depth here is going to be Ronnie Mauricio. It's the big three when you talk about the offensive prospects for the Mets. He's doing the Ronnie Mauricio thing where he's hitting a lot of home runs because his power is truly incredible. He's got a special, special bat when you talk about power. The average is a little bit low. He's not walking, but that's kind of been his shtick the entire time. He has a 4.3% walk rate, which is very low. Hilariously, an uptick from where he once was, though. Yes. So he, I will say improvement. Improvement. Improvement for Ronnie. Uh, 754 OPS. He's another guy who's extremely young, but you see the 13 homers, you see the 17 doubles, 47 RBIs, and you go, oh, this is a guy who can probably slot into the middle of the order in the future and give you a lot of production. And with Mauricio, he was not walking at all at the beginning of the year. Our last prospect report, we had mentioned that he had been running like an 8% walk rate over a two-week span, which, which we thought was great. Last two weeks, though, he stopped walking again. <laughs> That's right, Mauricio. So he's in the ball hard. He's in the ball hard. And Mauricio is a guy who has a very unique defensive floor. While he might never be like a true major league shortstop, he's someone who can play it at a slight, relatively advanced level. Like we recently saw a lot of scouts talk about O'Neill Cruz, the new burgeoning superstar on the Pittsburgh Pirates, six foot seven. 
looks like Brandon Marshall. People thought he would never stick a shortstop, but now suddenly he's playing in the major leagues. Yeah. Threw the hardest ball among the infield all year so far. Mauricio, I'm not going to compare him to O'Neill, but well, a little bit. He he's can, a big dude. He's a massive dude, and the fact that he can snuff it there still means that there's a really high likelihood that he will be able to give you at least slightly plus defense at third or second. Definitely. So with power and a little bit of defensive versatility, Mauricio is a prospect who was always considered like high ceiling, low floor. I kind of like Mauricio's floor. I like the floor is moving up. Yeah, it is because he's a guy who can do a lot of things and hits the ball hard. Like while the play discipline might be an issue, at worst case scenario, is a guy who's defensively versatile and has power, which then, every team could use. Yeah, and then shout out to Omar De Los Santos and Travis Blankenhorn, some names you guys might remember, both named players of their of the week in their respective minor leagues. Omar De Los Santos is with St. Lucie and Travis is with Syracuse. Nice. And uh, there's probably a chance we see Blankenhorn again at some point this year. An old friend from last year. I remember one of the craziest anecdotes that he that I heard about him gives you a little taste of what these guys, minor leaguers go through. He was on the, in the Dodger oh, system playing in Oklahoma City and was traded to the Mets. I believe it was last May or June, something like that. Early summer. And he wound up in Syracuse. And at the time, he literally did not have enough money to ship his car. So Travis Blankenhorn's car sat in Oklahoma City for, the, for a little while after that. Could still be there. I guess you could just, get, just dump the car. Get a new car. At Kill that it. point, just get a new car. No, I think in minor league, you're keeping your car. And it was a journey for Blankenhorn. He was he went from Seattle to the Dodgers May 24th of last year. June 1st, the Mets claimed him off the waivers from Seattle. So a lot of travel, not a good time to not have a car. Yeah. And he's a guy who was a former high draft pick, right? That's correct. I believe he was first or second round. And he was someone who, when he first got into, I believe the Dodgers drafted him, into their system, he was a relatively highly regarded prospect. And we saw his versatility last year and a little bit of pop. Yeah, it could be a guy that we see at the majors at some point this year for sure. Now on to the pitching side. Just a couple guys to talk about here, not too many. Uh, Dominic Hamill, who was a second or third round pick. I don't remember for him and Ziegler. I always get them confused what rounds they were picked last year. Good pitcher, though. Top, great. top pick last year for the Mets in the draft. And he started off the year a little bit shaky, but he's actually been great of late. Shout out to Jacob Resnick, who, if you're not following him on Twitter, probably the best prospect guy for the Mets. He has all the vi- I don't know where he gets these videos from. I don't think anybody he does. He gets them all. The video stuff is incredible. And for me, I'm a very visual guy with these prospects. got to have like a network of people in these ballparks. His connections have to be crazy. Absolutely. It's like a 22-year-old. Yeah, as a 22-year-old. He's <laughs> a beast follow him but this is basically his tweet in two starts against palm beach this week he went eight and two-thirds innings two earned runs zero walks and 12 k's and the zero walks is especially great because he had been averaging five over nine innings the entire year basically and he was able to go two starts in a row without giving up a single walk huge huge for dominic hamill pitching development the mets 2021 pitching draft class is looking like they have a couple of pretty pretty a lot of pitchers to be excited about we also have calvin ziegler who had a very hot start to the year, kind of got his name to a lot of real prospect buzz, but tapered down a little bit last two weeks, but that's okay. He's got great, great specs on his, uh, I believe it's a fastball and a slider so far. I think Hamill is of a similar repertoire. Also, Carson Seymour has been pitching well as well. Dude, and how about Nick Zwack? He was go. also a 2021 draft pick, 17th round out of Xavier. So the dude's coming from middle America, Ohio. That's not a baseball hotbed by any means, but Nick Zwack has been carving up. He carved up St. Louis. He got him a promotion to Brooklyn. And since his promotion to Brooklyn, a 1.85 ERA with a 25% K rate. And what I particularly love, 4.5% walk rate. Amazing. You have that kind of control as a pitcher that young. I mean, he's 23 years old. It's not like a 19-year-old by he's, means. He's pitching but young. He's, he's a young pitcher in terms of, you know, baseball years he's looked great and he carved up low a to 45 percent k rate in low a i love that let's go keep, keep this organizational depth rolling Got and then, some guys you could trade yeah and then i believe john you had a guy you wanted to talk about real quick right cam op yeah just a great story cam op a lefty um played his college ball at west point dual citizen parents moved to london when he was younger 
Uh, father passed away when he was young. He's been, like you said, carving up uh, for Brooklyn this year, 270 ERA, hard-throwing lefty. He's on the IL right now, but still a guy to keep an eye on. Um, obviously the best way. There's two ways to make the big leagues. Catching, throwing with your left hand, came off the second one. So just an awesome story. Impossible not to root for a guy like that. Yeah, Absolutely. I love those stories. And hopefully yeah. we hear some more great stuff on Cam Op. We'll check on him as the season goes on. Maybe we make a trip to Brooklyn at some point. Who knows? Yeah, we, we love a good trip to Brooklyn. Coney yeah. Island's a fun time. The clones. Yeah, we. On Friday every night. There you go. And half off beer on Thursdays. Well, I don't know about that. That's all you guys. <laughs> <laughs> that is all us. But anyway. Coney Island Brewery right there, too. An amazing place to hang out. Yeah, great job. Great job. So that's pretty much it for the prospect report. That's that all we one. got. That was a good one. That was a nice one. Not, not too deep, but also you guys get to learn a little bit of information about the guys in the farm system. We got to hold some back for the next prospect report. Of course, yeah. I, we have some deep cuts in the DSL and the CPX that we will give you in the next one. You're going to hear some names. With Jesus. Uh, we got Simone Juan, Simone you know, got Juan, names like Jesus that. Baez. Yeah, Jesus Baez. We'll, we'll tell you about them in the next one, so you guys make sure you stick around for that. Now I think is the perfect time kind of wrap this all up here with the Rangers preview. We have three games up against the Texas Rangers who feel like they have not been to City Field maybe ever. I don't know the last time we played the Mets in City Field. 2017. Oh, 2017. That's actually way sooner than I thought. That's five years. Oh, oh, it is 2022. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I don't like that it's 2022. I don't like thinking about that it was five years ago. Man, the World Series was seven years ago. My goodness. Yeah. But as far as pitching matchups for the series, Friday night, an Apple TV broadcast. Hey, now. We're going to have Chris Bassett versus Glenn Otto. Glenn Otto, former Yankees prospect, went yes. over in that Joey Gallo trade. That's yielded basically four major leaguers already. It's been a great trade for the Rangers. Great but trade. Chris Bassett, better pitcher by all means. Yeah, Otto is fine. Otto actually just came off a little stint on the COVID IL. He was pitching well before that. We'll see what he, what he gets next time around. But Saturday, 4 o'clock game, David Peterson versus Martin Perez, who I don't I don't know. I, I can't wrap my head around Martin Perez. He's, he's, he's come back to earth a little bit more recently. Martin Perez, longtime journeyman who basically always went out there with nothing. <laughs> twins, Red Sox. Who else? There's someone else before Twins, too. Uh, Ray, he was with the Rangers. Rangers. Yeah. yeah, originally with the I Rangers. Yeah. Enough, the last time the Mets and Rangers played, Martin Perez? Martin Perez started for Texas. So How did he do, though? How did he do? Martin Perez. Eight innings, one run, five days. <laughs> Limiting the hard contact, what Martin Perez does. Yeah, Martin oh. Perez has a, has a cutter that is just really going to grind everyone's gears on Saturday evening. But he's someone who was probably pitching a little over his skis for the first two months. Definitely. In position to be an AL All-Star, which I never, <laughs> ever would have thought that. If anybody listened to me in the first pitch podcast, <laughs> I routinely talk down on Martin Perez and his resurgence. But Martin Perez, we also talked about that recently, had a relationship with Jeremy Hefner. So Jeremy Hefner really helped him kind of develop in that one year he was with the Twins. or Jeremy, The one year they overlapped with the Twins. And then Sunday, matinee, 140. Carlos Carrasco versus John Gray. And I think a pretty interesting pitching matchup. Yeah, definitely. Uh, two guys that have been a little bit up and down this year, mm -hmm. but both have good stuff. Yeah, and Gray especially has always had stuff. I won't necessarily call it good. He's always had good velocity, former first-round pick, had yeah. some arm trouble coming up with the Rockies, which is almost your best-case scenario, coming up with the Rockies, get some arm trouble, hopefully to get ready. <laughs> the the sooner you get out of that organization, <laughs> yeah. the better. But he's always had a kind of an obscure fastball shape that actually worked really well in Coors Field because it was able to keep the ball down. But when you play in any other ballpark, it's really not that effective at all. He, even though it has such good velocity, he has no ride on it, none of that rising action we want to see these days. But since coming to the Rangers, they've helped him develop a new pitch that's sweeping across baseball, the sweeper, yeah. which is like a slider that kind of feels like a curveball. It has a different observed spin than the perceived spin. So based on the way it leaves a guy's hand, it actually moves more than what's expected from that. But that pitch is very good for Gray. The rest of them aren't really that scary at all. These are three pitchers who are competent, but none of them are especially that great. But this Rangers team is, I would call them, annoying-ish. 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't watch enough Rangers baseball to make a claim if they're annoying or not yet. There's one reason I don't watch as much Rangers baseball as I would, and it's because the camera angle when they're at home is so high. It's abysmal. It's, it's terrible. It's like it's uncomfortable to watch. Brand new stadium. They can't figure out where to put a camera. And it also like ruins wanting to like if anyone follows me on Twitter every like week or so, I like to make like a nice video about a pitcher or a hitter, someone that's doing something interesting that I want to point out. And all the videos inside of it's, it's called Globe Life. Globe Life, yeah. Globe Life Field. I mean, you've you've been there. He says wonderful. It's right? a nice stadium. I enjoy it. It's just it screws up all of like a series of videos you want to show. It's really bizarre that they would make a new stadium and that would happen. But they the Rangers are a team that played really poorly at the beginning of the year, but has actually been playing very good baseball for the last two months. They're cr- crawling back to 500. They are technically second place in the American League West, which yeah. feels weird for a team that's under 500. But that's yeah. the American League West for you. Yeah. And it's not really a bad roster. Adelise Garcia does a lot of things well. He will swing and miss exorbitant amount. But and he will not walk. No, but he's hitting 260 on the year, which I bet no one saw that one coming. 15 homers, 15 doubles, great athlete. And really I think sh- he, 11 steals. Yeah, he bursts real, out of his jersey, too. He's If you have your play rotisserie, baseball. Adelise Garcia was basically free in draft season. He's been something of an MVP so far. Nathaniel Lowe, also fantasy baseball saver prospect of the last five years. Plays good ball. Corey Seager has finally started to heat up. Crushing since. lefties. Yes. Marcus Semien has showed signs of life. He's been an overall disappointment besides that one crazy week he had like two weeks ago where he yeah. had like six homers, but he's showing signs of life. Cole Calhoun has won the 25 best barrel rates in all of baseball. That's, right? That stop me in my tracks. Yeah, Jonah Heim, who is now their starting catcher because now Mitch Garver's more of a DH for them, even though they kind of seemed like they were going to split time there. Someone who Mark misranked in his offseason catcher rankings. To be fair, based on what was seen, it was a, it was a very fair evaluation. And, but, to be, and also, shout to Mr. Heim, who is a, a friend of the podcast. Jonah yes, Heim's dad yes. loves DMing me, gives me all the inside scoop. Uh, he's a New York kid. I think he's from Buffalo, so it'll go. be a little bit of a homecoming for Jonah Heim. But... With that, something to talk about here with the Rangers. It might be getting a little too deep on the Rangers, but I want to talk about the Rangers because most Mets fans have like no information about the Rangers ever. No. They hired this offseason Donnie Ecker, who was the Giants hitting coordinator last year. Okay. So if you want to talk about where the Giants were getting their black magic from and they lost, a lot of it was this man Donnie Ecker. Donnie Ecker. And if you look at the barrel rates of a lot of these players on the Rangers, they are a lot higher than you would probably have thought they would have been if you looked at these guys before the season. Jonah Heim, I believe, is a top – Top three OPS of all catchers in baseball. Yeah, and, and while still f- playing good defense. Yeah, to be fair, catcher OPS very low, but no, but I think it's like actually good OPS though. It's seven seven seventy one. It's a great year. Great it's year. Well over league average. Yeah, they'd no, be like the third highest year. on the Mets. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just this Rangers team has good players that maybe don't have the greatest stats. Well, I mean, a lot of guys actually have good stats. Because last thing I want to talk about is the fact that the Rangers bullpen this year has also been very very impressive. Matt Bush, former high draft pick, ups and downs, got back to the league. Number one overall pick. Number one overall pick, really? Yeah. Striking out over 12 guys per nine innings. Joe Barlow, someone I love. I featured him in an article on Pitcher List in the offseason. He has just one of those beautiful rising fastballs. Gets on you in a hurry. I'm sure we'll see Brock Burke. Brock Burke has been unhittable. Like these are and Matt Moore transitioned to the bullpen for them. He's yeah. had struggles with command, but he actually is striking out. Our guy Matt Moore. Yeah, Matt Moore. Oh my god. Uh, we gotta face him one day, but I don't want to face Matt, he's good in the bullpen. Yeah, so no, keep him out way. I don't want to do that. But these, the bullpen is actually annoyingly good. So that's gonna be unfortunate to face. But really, at the end of the day, the Mets are the better team than the Rangers. Yeah, but the Rangers are pesky. They have a lot to, they have a decent amount of talent. I'll call them pesky when they start to be pesky to me. They're they haven't like 500. Been, they haven't been pesky to me yet. Yeah, that's true. They're ALS. Yeah, ALS. Keep them out there. We should beat this team, though, especially with the pitching matchups. Like, Bassett's been great. Peterson's been really solid. Peterson's yeah. looked so good. We've talked about it multiple times. Carrasco, we need a bounce-back start. But there's by no reason why the Mets can't win this series. Especially Carrasco at home against a team that's not the Astros. I like those odds. Yeah, I love those odds. <laughs> Get him. It's another Texas team, which makes me feel a little weird, but <laughs> away from the Astros as much as possible. Yeah. 
I mean, hey, I think that's all we got here today. Yeah, I think that's all we got here. Great way to wrap up this episode here of the Messed Up Podcast, episode number 105. Make sure you guys are following us on all our social media as well as our podcast feed. So if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, download the podcast, follow us, subscribe, whatever it's called. I don't know the actual terminology, but hey, do it so you don't miss the next episode after we wrap up this Rangers series. Hopefully a series win here. Remember, the sky is not falling. We are going to be okay. This Mets team is good. Stable sky. Yeah, stable sky. Stable sky. We're going to raise the roof. And this episode, since the series ending July 3rd, I believe, I don't know, maybe I'm asking you guys right now live, coming out on the 4th in the morning, maybe? Or maybe? The Mets are playing that Monday in Cincinnati? They are in Cincinnati. Yeah, and it's a day game, so we'll be done recording relatively early. So if you guys, again, this is up to you guys now. There will be an episode that you can listen to on the 4th. Maybe if you're going back to work on the 5th, maybe save it. Save it for the commute, save it for the office, save it for the cube, and then come back in, and then you'll, you'll get us next week, too. It could also be a good morning listen. It could, yeah, before 4th of July festivities. Debauchery. Yeah. No, I don't know about debauchery, but... I said festivities. festivities I think that's way yeah. more in that's... line with what, what we want to be saying. <laughs> yeah, that's, prob- <laughs> that's probably more appropriate for our listener base. For the whole breadth of the listener base. <laughs> but anyway, guys, that's where we'll wrap it up. Make sure you're following me and James on Twitter as well, at DraftDeckMark, at James Shiano, and make sure you're following the Mets up. Social medias, at Mets Up, everywhere. Mets YouTube channel for the video content. And we're going to get some TikToks coming soon, I think. So, yeah, keep an eye out for those. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll see you on the next episode of the Mets Up Podcast. Peace out. Peace out, guys. See you next time. Get up. Get, get up.